Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. I'm excited to have you hear the second part of my conversation with Jamie DeWolf today. He is L. Ron Hubbard's great-grandson, and he is a poet and a vaudevillian and a writer and a filmmaker and a teacher and a humanitarian and a father. And he's someone who has decided to help people get empowered. And he's someone who's also decided to educate people to the best of his ability about cults and systems of control. And he carries the weight of having this family legacy and he takes it to heart and he wants to do what he can to do his part to undo some of the damage done by his great-grandfather and the group that he started. Here's Jamie DeWolf now. So this idea of there being uh, an enemy, to go back to a couple of things that you were saying, I learned, I learned so much from talking with you and the way that you phrase things and a uh, couple of thoughts. One is this idea that they really attack former members. Yeah. I know they attack a lot of people who are helping people also who like me who are helping former members. But I think having somebody leave is such a blow to the cult leader's ego mm. that it proves that they don't have ultimate control and they can't sustain ultimate control over that person and it's no longer working. Yeah. And I think that's devastating. And so uh, with a lot of people who can't handle those feelings of being devastated, they will go on the offense. So they're not on the defense because they really actually have to defend their fragile internal ego. Right. So yes, I really feel for the people born and raised and in these groups and people who have left who are just trying to land and trying to get their heads together. And then they're... Uh, incredibly attacked or uh, family members who are still in are kept from them. And it is, um, it's beyond cruel. But I, I, I was thinking that maybe the origin is the, the ouch that the cult leader feels, and that's built into the system when people leave. And I think the other part about an enemy, uh, it's very energizing. And it, right, it kind of is, is its own intoxication. It's its own catnip. It's a it, there's something where you release adrenaline because you are suddenly needing to come together and fight something because there is an imminent threat. I'm thinking going back to Hitler and I'm still thinking about his Facebook page. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to put that idea out there. No, I mean, he's uh, there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know I, I, I can't, I mean, I have people in my family who did are survived the Holocaust and some who, who did not, but I, well, it was that perfect example of that. It was clearly about him, but it was every, all of his speeches, it's about us. It's about the German people. It's about you know? us, like, right. Every co-leader, it's like when he, in the end, when he blows his brains out, it basically dies because, I mean, all of his top inner circle, they're like, I'm out of this. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, obviously they're losing the war and everything else, but I mean, that it's that classic, trade of like you know i'm you know i am just a uh, an ambassador for germany you know what i mean i give my life to you you know but it's clearly about you dude <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> you know? yeah yeah dude hitler dude 
but the we, the we always sounds great. It always sounds good. And if people get all of those, the powers as you move up, you know, that that's yeah. a big part of it. But I guarantee, yeah, if, if Hitler had a Facebook page, it'd all be about us, us, we, we, you uh-huh. know what I mean? He'd have his own little secret groups. It's only Germans allowed, you know what I mean? And, and it'd just be all about like, what are we doing? You know, yeah. but I'm the only one that can lead this, you know, so nobody should really think about uh, sharing the power or any of that. I'm definitely leading this because I alone have the vision for it, but I'm doing it for you. I'm doing it for you. So if you will just give me all of the power, then I will handle it just fine. You know? Yeah. Well said. I think he he also, he he did a lot of things that unfortunately were way too successful into getting into people's heads. And the clearly defined enemy. Right. From what I remember hearing, he would often... I think, talk about the enemy being a threat. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't so much that we just had to get rid of them because we want to be able to expand our empire, but they're an actual threat to us in every way. Uh, And also that they're not human. That he talked about them being vermin, like that you could exterminate. And that's what happened. And I think there's so many cultic groups that use uh, a word to label the others yeah. where they then don't seem to be as human and people who you don't actually have to treat with that same kind of respect. And also people who you then don't want to be a part of because you're then going to be falling very low to then join the ranks of these people who are, you know, less than human. I think the language is is so powerful that's used to label everybody else. Yeah, language is a it's like one of the very first like actual devices I think that's used is learning the vernacular and kind of learning the, how to speak from one member to another um, because it pushes you further and initiates you further into that world. And it also starts to make it less possible to convey your experiences to regular people on the street. And I think that that sense of, of othering, you know, and that is, always like a huge component and language is absolutely a part of it. I mean, you see this, everything from, you know, Harry Potter does it perfectly with like the muggles, you know, et cetera, that they're just speaking about so derisively when, when, um, and half bloods and, you know, whatever. And obviously they're, um, they're using the, uh, Nazi theology and everything as, as kind of the paradigm for that. But it's a perfect example how it can just work in almost any context. I mean, Mm -hmm. those are children books, right. And basically the same concept that was, you know, in Nazi Germany, like a five-year-old or six-year-old can understand the same thing. And that, uh, you know, that there's this elite, there's these people who have designated themselves the elite. And that's another part of it is that this kind of, the disguised narcissism of the leader becomes imparted to its members as well, um, of that we are special, we are unique. You know, it is only us. You are not, they are not one of us. Those are some of them. And I think that that's also why, and you want to make those separations, but having an active threat though is huge. And co-leaders often have have manufactured their own threats to make that as physically present as possible. Um, Jim Jones, and he's in Jones, Jonestown, right? That they were, they were completely away from pretty much all society. That was the whole point of it. And people are starting to really lose um, their zeal. You know, that they were stuck in the middle of the jungle was fucking miserable. 
And so some of them wanted to go home. They wanted to leave because they had been there too long. Yeah. And Jim Jones realized that he had to rally his his folks. And so he set up a fake assassination attempt on himself where he had one of his inner circle run into the jungle and take a shot at him in front of everybody and, you know, like narrowly miss him. And he fell down and, and faked a heart attack. And it did exactly as he intended where it regalvanized everybody and they're like oh shit i'm not going anywhere because we're under attack and they're like look we got to lock down all the exits you know that's why you see all these guns are out now because who knows what's going to happen we're under attack we have to be careful and you know you look at even the start of world war ii it's like that's how hitler started it basically with like uh doing his own false flag operation you know basically be like look they're attacking us that was his justification to all the other countries that like look, we're not, we got attacked, you know? So we're simply responding and that kind of mentality. And they kept that up over and over in World War II. I mean, it's it's really sad how effective these devices work, right. but I mean, they do, you know? And I mean, as a flip of the Hitler thing, um, you're almost seeing an opposite of that these days with these kind of neo-Nazis that want to come to Berkeley or whatever and and basically start fights. You know, they're they're coming to quote, shove it in the face of the opposition. And then that has immediately galvanized many people that I know, you know what I mean? Who are are probably in their day-to-day could just be like viewed as a kind of hippie musician person or whatever. But Nazis are coming to town and they are booting up and they're like, we're going to fuck them up because it makes it a palpable threat. And you know, I'm I'm definitely on the side of fucking Nazis up. Um, so that's, that's where I come in on that. Um, but that it definitely always is galvanizing to folks because there's action, you know, involved. And I think that that's something with OSA um, and Scientology, the black ops arm, is I think that talking to some ex-members of it and so forth, I think it also gets discounted how much of them start to enjoy it, that it becomes this kind of sadistic glee to dismantle and destroy people's lives because they view you as an other, they view you as an enemy, and it's destroy you at all costs. And I think what's always disturbing for any critics of Scientology, for instance, as one example, is I don't think a lot of the world understands how dangerous it is to talk about, uh, to talk against them, um, how dangerous they still are in present tense, and that how easy it is to wreck someone's life. You know what I mean? It's like when you are in that mentality as someone who's been on the other side and you start to understand um, in a real tangible way that people are coming after you. I mean, it brings up a whole host of just how weak all of us are as a target. You know what I mean? That like all of your everything's that can be hacked into, that your car could get dismantled and you could crash, your uh, every mistake you've ever done in your life. You know what I mean? All of your whatever jobs you currently have, they can try to get you fired from. And then they can't find shit. They just outright lie about you. You know what I mean? And just spread information to your neighbors, just, you know, et cetera. Like that's just even a starter list of, of like kind of the basic playbook. And it really is, is it's scary when you realize that, you know, you're all, no one is, is invulnerable. It, it kind of doesn't even matter how much money you have um, for them to smash on. You know what I mean? Like they have hit sites that go up on Google and get like up in your top rankings. So like, even if they're not affecting your, physical day-to-day life 
like they are trying to destroy your reputation, your, your life, your mm -hmm. um, standing in the community and family and everything else. And so, I mean, I think that, that there, it gets, doesn't get looked at enough that, I mean, that people on that side, that some of them really kind of kind of embrace that sadism of it um, the same way that Nazis have the same way that, you know, hitmen have, you know I mean? That it becomes more, of, of they become soldiers and so some of them are going to take glee in that and it can get really dangerous i mean i i try to explain to people a lot not i'm you know with scientology obviously but i'm i'm sure with other cults it's the same is that you are you are not going against someone who necessarily has different beliefs than you that you're going against a fanatic you're going against someone who is absolutely believes if they say what they believe and they are in it right? And they're not like on the verge of leaving or whatever, they're in it, then they have to rationally think that you are absolutely an enemy and trying to stop the salvation of the world. So who are the fuck are you not to be destroyed? You know what I mean? You're like, this person over here is literally trying to stop the salvation of the world. So fuck this person, you know what I mean? Like they need to be destroyed at all costs, you know, the same way that America acts like it's not in the fans, not fans of murder. And then like they kill bin Laden, you know, and, and murder's like awesome, you know, for a day or two. And because it was basically like, this guy is the enemy of everything you hold dear. So it's like, he has to go, you know, people are popping champagne bottles, you know, left and right. And, um, and that's not to have any discussion about bin Laden as a character. I'm just saying that like, when you have that mindset, yeah, right. That, um, it justifies everything, you know what I mean? Like blow them up, you know, murder them, et cetera. So it's like when you're, when you're opposing a cult, you know, I mean, same with like Jonestown, right? Like they just shot them on the airfield. They're like, they, they are going to go back and they're going to ruin everything we've created. So they got to go. Like, we're going to literally mm -hmm. shoot them dead on the airstrip, you know? So, I mean, that's what causes that kind of mentality. And, um, yeah. That's what I think is is difficult when I, I just feel like it's really rough when people start to act polite, you know, around some of these belief systems. And they're like, well, you know, we got to respect everyone's belief. And like, do you know what they think of you? Because they don't, you know what I mean? Like, if they think that you are literally like a demonic force that needs to be destroyed, like mm -hmm. you're not having the same conversation. You know what I mean? You're not having a neutral form of diplomacy or uh, any kind of a you know, like a discussion, it's like, they are, they view it as war and they're going to make it war, you know? And so mm -hmm. that's what people keep learning about Scientology over and over. They're like, Oh God, they're nasty. And they're like, yeah, they, you're not just like a critic. You know what I mean? They view you as an enemy. You know what I mean? That you are, you are stepping in. Like basically they view it as that you just walked onto a battlefield and you're the only one that's pretending that it's not. You know, so that's what's terrifying about a lot of it. And people really need to realize that. Yeah, they really, really do. And I and I think just uh, to, to review a couple of things that you were saying. And yeah, I mean, there there were a number of times where I was attacked and I will always be by them. And and there there is this phrase that goes through my head where I'm thinking, what did I do? Mm -hmm because yeah, I made myself available to someone who wanted to talk about their experience or I have given them a platform on the podcast or whatever else, but right. what did I, what did I 
do to them. It doesn't, it actually, that doesn't matter. You don't have to have done something. You can just be perceived as this threat. And yes, I do think that people really get off on it and they really feed off of that energy and seeing what they can get away with and seeing what they can do. And for some people, they, they are kind of sociopathic in their way and that's why it's an easy fit. And other people, that can be drummed up in you situationally. And you, when it, it's when you leave that drug that you realize, oh, that wasn't me. And then you have a lot of shame about what you did and what you were actually able to be kind of motivated to do, like whipped into a froth over something where you weren't thinking anymore and you weren't thinking about the consequences, not only to the other person, but to your psyche later on when you, when you reflect back about what you did. I think that there's this other part about really going and attacking people where sometimes people do it for their own standing within the group because they have to report back. They raise their stats like in Scientology. So sometimes it's very self-serving, you know? Right. I think that there's also this other piece that is, that is so interesting where, yeah, when people are just like passing out these personality tests and it's in pink or whatever, it seems very innocuous. Uh, yeah. I juxtapose that with actually the, my first podcast interview with Patricia Ryan, Leo Ryan's daughter. And the reason that I wanted her on the podcast first was because it was through Jonestown that I learned what a cult was and what could happen. And it was my first introduction. I sort of wanted her to be the first introduction to the podcast. And she talked about, I believe it was um, when she found out that her father had been murdered um, on the tarmac in Guyana and that she was driving along the Golden Gate Bridge and she heard it on the radio. And you have this moment where you think, oh, he was just a street preacher and, you know, he wanted uh, to come across as this very caring person. And how does it devolve into those moments and how does it get there? And you're right. There are too many of these mm, techniques that are way too successful. And so I wonder what it is. I mean, as you I mean, it's a discussion about cults, but it's a discussion about the mind. Uh, what do you think makes us susceptible to this? And I, I know, I know that's a big question, but I'm sure it's something that you that you think about. Well, one thing I, I to sort of echo a little what I was saying before that you were talking about devolve right in Jonestown, and I think that's an important term there because did it like it it led to huge, awful violence, obviously mass suicide, but that theology was already there. It was already there. They had already been practicing it. They had done drill runs. It had been stated. It had been worked up towards, but it was there. It, it did not come out of literally nowhere. You know what I mean? They had already done practice whole runs where he told them, you all just drank poison. And then an hour later, just kidding. How do you feel? I just wanted to test you, right. you know, and that sort of thing. So, I mean, that's the thing I think is really tricky about the whole sort of cult conversation and um, is that cults are always going to use this American sort of strange um, begrudging respect that America kind of pretends to have for all of these other religions as America, right? Mm -hmm. Though it's clear from all of the actions of America that it is blatantly Judeo-Christian and is absolutely 
you know, really frowns upon nearly every other religion. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's, you know, you push them against the wall at the press conference. They're like, we love all religions. We're America. You know, we have space to everybody and everybody else. And then you, mm-hmm. you know, you look at the war of terror and things like that. I mean, it's obvious. It's, it's like so much running through it is this like, um, strain of Christianity versus, um, you know, Muslims. And so it's, it's like that kind of gets buried in, in danced around. And I think that another thing that gets danced around is like this inability, um, which I sometimes get confronted by where like, you're not allowed to call batshit theology. That's fucking crazy and apocalyptic and dangerous for exactly what it is. You know what I mean? They're saying it out loud. It's all right there. It's in a book. You can walk in, you can pick it up from a lot of them. They are not having, they don't have any ambiguity to their followers, but like, why is it surprising when these things become dangerous? It's like, it's already there. It's already there in the theology Mm -hmm. and that it's the only difference is that they did it. You know what I mean? It's like if a school shooter had a newsletter they've been coming out with for months, you know what I mean? And years. And then they go and they shoot the school and they're like, what led to this? You know, how did they devolve? And I don't think that they devolved. They literally just sort of like acted on their promise, you know, on their statement, mm-hmm. on their sort of like their their mission statement. They just executed it. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it's mm-hmm. horrific and, and so forth. But I mean, I think that that's also a problem is that like, you know, you have people that sometimes leave cults and they they bang the drum and they're like, look, like this shit is dangerous this shit is crazy and they're like you know no one seems to pay attention until something awful happens Mm -hmm. and i know that that because that's a really tricky arena because even me saying these the statement people could be like you know who are you to tell people what to believe and a lot of americans kind of default on the uh well you can believe any of the crazy shit you want you know um but you know i don't think you should whatever but i mean like i don't know if i 100 percent agree with that like i kind of don't think that Nazis should believe that shit. You know what I mean? I really wish they didn't. I wish that there was education on that. I mean, because those belief systems are fucking dangerous and they are dangerous in their very genesis. And the only difference is the execution of it. The mentality hasn't changed. It's already in there. Like, you know, we need to kill these folks. We need to stop the opposition. That the apocalypse is coming. We need to get guns, you know, et cetera. There's the flashpoint. But like, you know, did the Branch Davidians, did they really, were their beliefs that much different? Like in the month before the ATF raids and all the guns and, or did they, were they exactly the same? And then it just got pushed to that limit. So a lot of them, they become their own self-fulfilling Armageddon. You know I mean? They perpetuate it. They make it happen by this kind of theology. So yeah, that's something that has always really haunted me. It's like, there's this sense that they all got to Jonestown and chug the flavor aid it was not kool-aid um that mm-hmm. they chug mm-hmm. the flavor aid and then like they were all just driven to it out of some kind of insane mania in like the last days or because they were isolated that he just drove them into it and obviously there was an acceleration and because they had the congressman and, and the visits i mean that like took things to the nth degree but i mean it was already there yeah. i mean it was already in the theology it was already there um, he had already questioned them a million times. Would you die for me? And so forth. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that that's always dangerous because then you, if you speak out against Scientology, one of Scientology's greatest attacks is that you're a religious bigot. You know what I mean? That that's what they, that's their main line of defense. 
this is America. We should be able to believe what we want to believe. You're a religious bigot. They will often accuse people of being Nazis. They'll be like, this is how the Nazis started. They love talking about Nazis. It always just blows my mind. And the, even though the the Elrond admitted that, oh, I'm sorry, the Sea Org was basically like fashioned after the Hitler youth, you know what I mean? And that uh, fashion after the, you know, this sort of faction, this kind of like pseudo-militaristic arm, you know, and the SS is like the Sea Org, like you're signing your soul over, you're the inner squadron, you know I mean? The whole nine. And so, right. yeah. And yeah. the, Scientology has been able to run absolute havoc and destroy untold amount of lives um, and is still doing it today because they hide behind that. You know what I mean? And it's like their beliefs and all of that is all right there. You can download all of it. They're not hiding any of it. You can download all of their, you know, the, the directions on how to destroy their enemies and which ways to do it and internal documents on how they have destroyed their enemies mm-hmm. and step by step. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? They're, Back mm-hmm. in the day, really systematic about paperwork. And so why is it surprising, you mm-hmm. know what I mean, that they become this malignant force? It's like, it's it was all right there. They're literally following orders, you know what I mean, that have been put down and, and put in place. Wow. I think groups like that really do believe that they are this band of people who are kind of um, showing people the way. Right. And that they have their own way of doing things and they're going to dismiss the rest of the world and they're going to kind of forge this path that is this empowered path. And I think if they were just to look down, they would see how much they're in lockstep with each other, which doesn't doesn't show, it doesn't give a vision of I'm thinking on my own and I'm making this decision in an empowered way for myself. It's, it's, more like being like sheep, like, um, than I think they would want to admit. I'm curious, you know, it's reminding me actually years ago when I was doing this former cult member support group in the place that used to exist called the cult clinic at Jewish family service in LA. And there were a couple of Scientologists who showed up at the, at the support group. And they said, we're here because we are former, whatever they were raised with. And, um, we consider that to be a cult. And we need to be here now. There were some people there who had just left Scientology who did not want their information, their names, the fact that they were attending the group to be known by Scientology. Current Scientologists that were coming with like a cover story or what? They came and they were very open about the fact that they were Scientologists. So they could do the following, which they did. Uh, I took them aside because I could see that one of the people in the group who had been there a couple of weeks and it had already it had taken her an inordinate amount of bravery to be able just to kind of show up and she was worried about being noticed or seen suddenly someone she knew from her org walked in so i had to protect the people there and i took them aside and i said i'm i'm sorry you know if you if you want to be able to come to this group you need to do it the way other people have done it and you need to come to me and we'll talk and we'll see if this is the right fit for you. Cause that is the way I do it. I don't have people just stopping in for this reason. Yeah. And then they contacted the, the board saying that I was um, doing uh, religious persecution. And so they were very purposeful about saying we are Scientologists. So it was a setup so that I could be the one doing religious persecution. Oh man. Yeah. People need to read about the cult awareness network, the, the whole horror story of that, which would be like, that would be a horror movie if someone just made the actual facts of that into 
a documentary or just a narrative feature. I mean, it's, it's absolutely terrifying. And, you know, that's one of those examples of like, I don't even, I really don't know what percentage one could estimate, estimate that of Scientologists that actually know fully what they actually believe, because you have to get up to OT eight, you know, and everything you have to buy your way up all these secret levels. Mm -hmm. And so that to me has always just been blown my mind is that you have these people who are lockstep soldiers attacking their opponents. And like, you don't even know everything that you believe because Mm -hmm. it's been held from you in these secret pseudo vaults that you have to buy your way into. Mm -hmm. And you know, of you finding out about Elrond as the Antichrist or that Jesus is this like alien implants and, you know, whatever, all, all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So that to me is always haunting that you have these people who are like attack dogs, you know, and you even wonder, you're like, you don't even know, you don't even know what you're defending all the way. You know what I mean? Like you might only be to like OT level two. You don't even have any idea. Are you OT level four? You don't know your full belief system. And yet you're still fighting tooth and nail and trying to counter maneuver individuals. And yeah, I think that, that with Scientology, it's always um, Scientology, Christianity, Catholic Church, the epidemic of molestation and rape by the Catholic Church. Like it has the same issue. It's the same thing where it's like people are like, well, we can't can't talk about this. We can't step on any toe. You're like, yes, you can Yes, you can, and you should, and, and stuff will continue to masquerade um, and hide behind that shield forevermore. You know what I mean? Because yes. that is how you get away with it. Is you're like, nope, this is this is we got to respect this. This is sanctified. You know, we're in a place of worship mm. that you imbue everything with a sense of holiness, and that you can't go there. You know, and if you mm-hmm. go there, you are attacking the sacred. You know, and so it's just incredibly dangerous and unfortunate and you know i'm sure that who knows I'm, i may see quotes from this like posted in freedom magazine like next week it's oh, like sure you jamie dewalt talks sure about adolf hitler wishing he had a facebook account or you know whatever the fuck latest they come with. it seems from what i found from freedom magazine you actually don't have to have said it at all even not even slightly for it to be quoted um I have one more question about Scientology and then I, I wanted, if it's, a, if it's okay, and I'm sure it's more than okay, for us to just move away. And then I just, I know you, your time is precious, so I don't want to keep you too long. But I get asked a lot, and I'm sure you do too, with all that has been disclosed, with all that is now public, with all that people now know that they can have access to with all the transparency, why is it still around? And why does it still get taxism status? What is that about? And I, I can't answer the question um, fully. I mean, I know that they had, they didn't have their taxism status for a while and then they got it back and there are whole stories about how that happened. But why do you think none of this matters? I think it's brutally simple is that it's purely money. I mean, that they have the money and the real estate that they've achieved that level of American riches where they don't have to have a single other member ever join and they can just ride off into the sunset off real estate alone. You know what I mean? And if they got into a bad position, they could flip a bunch of houses, flip a bunch of their crazy palatial estates that they have. I mean, they own so much real estate at this point and that's where a lot of the money is hidden away and and socked away. Um, So it's really about money. I mean, the money is what fuels 
the lawsuits that fuels the private investigators that terrify journalists that terrify everybody still i mean the amount of projects that um i've been involved with that people get gun shy you know at the end of the line they're just like i can't i can't keep going forward on this it's life is too short we can't deal with it we don't want to go up against them you know i want to get this information out but i mean it's just it's just not worth it and you know, I understand that. I totally get it. It sucks. It's heartbreaking um, because they continue to ruin so many lives. And, you know, I feel like I, in some ways I didn't really have a choice because it's like when I started just talking about my family, you know, when people are asking me about Scientology that immediately by even answering any questions, just literally about who I am, I'm already like a critic in some ways um, because our side of the family, they don't want to acknowledge exists. Uh, Junior obviously had his own war against and, you know, et cetera. And so, and then when they came after me immediately, then I would talk about them coming after me. And then that only just digs it deeper. So before you know, it's that same thing where it's like, I was on a battlefield and I hadn't realized it. You know, I was like, I'm just talking about my family. What's the, why are they coming after me to my house? You know? And um, you know, my aunts and uncles are just like, this is, you're stepping into a war zone. You know, you may view it as that you're writing a poem, that you're, you're answering some questions. But mm -hmm. I mean, they view that as, is basically like you just ran up on a fortress and with your little cap gun or something, you know, now you're facing tanks. So, right. okay. um, but I think it's money, it's money and David Miscavige clearly, um, that the money is the biggest factor why they haven't crumbled. Um, because their membership is dwindling. They don't have many members left, um, but they are still just as predatory and as aggressive towards their critics as ever mm -hmm. because they have sort of an endless slush fund for it. And someone who left OSA before and is on the outside now, they made a really good point that I think is, is very telling is they said that you know, for all these different missions that got shut down and, and different programs of Scientology and different products they put out and then re-put out and whatever. Um, you said the only faction that never got its budget cut was OSA. You know, that they would have sort of an endless checks on OSA. They needed something done, it would happen. And if you really look at it, Scientology in a very simple way that it's primarily run by David Miscavige, he's gotten rid of his own inner circle. So a lot of them have left. He's now moved people up, you know, but I think it's pretty clear from a lot of people who've been around recently um, and have left that it's really, it's really indistinct as to who else would take over if David Miscavige just, you know, had a heart attack and died. Um, like, who is that second in command that could right. actually steer the ship? But even if he did die, right, um, I think that there's a, a lot to be learned from how David Miscavige took power, um, that when Elrond was sick and Junior's lawsuit that was trying to flush his father out of hiding, um, it caused a real sort of pivotal endgame that I really don't think has been explored enough. Because you think of it this way, is that if Elrond is not really holding the reins anymore, because at that point he's kind of off his rocker, he's on a ranch, he's been in on the run for like 10 plus years, bunch of folks, even his own wife, have gone to jail. And so he's kind of not really holding the reins the way he used to. 
and his inner circle and Junior's lawsuit were really faced to this prospect of like, what do we do when Elrond goes, when he's gone? Like right now, he's like out of a point where we can't get that. We, we don't want him in court. We don't want him writing. We don't want him because he's going to drive all this into the ground. It's going to collapse. Um, and so that's where that inner circle starts to really take the reins and get the true power. And the true power is who's got all the phone numbers of the lawyers that you call? Who knows where all the money's at? Who has access to those bank accounts? What names are those signed to? That's where the power is at. The power is not in the theology. Um, you're going to have attack dogs all day, people who will die Scientologists and, you know, they'll believe it till their dying breath. Fine. But I mean, like, they don't have access to all of the true power, which is the money. You know, that's where the resources is. That's where you have all of your opposition, your attack dogs, your PIs, lawyers, that whole army, all that comes from those resources. So when David Miscavige goes, it's whoever gets access to that. Maybe it's a couple lawyers. You know what I mean? You were sort of like, okay, let's partition off this empire. Oh, wow. You know, that, that's where you're going to see that struggle. Okay. And that's what happened when Elrond left. You saw David Miscavige's huge struggle for power where they had the brokers who were basically caretakers of Elrond and were all about the theology, but they didn't have the power the same way that Miscavige did because Miscavige was sort of the go back and forth in between, between the secret base and the outside world. Mm -hmm. So he had to deal as the, someone who was dealing with all of those problems. He had to know where all the, how can I pay this lawyer? Could we have this lawsuit happening? This is happening. I got to sit private investigators on this. Who do I call? How do I pay them? You know? And so there was all this reorganization that happened after to put all the money everywhere. And with all of that money, they're able to, you know, smash on the IRS until the IRS just gave up and gave him tax exemption. Um, and then they literally had a, you know, had a celebration saying the war is won. Another Big perfect one. example of the war mentality, like the IRS, like that's a war. And the IRS, they're like, we just want money. You know what I mean? We're government. They're not going to war. You know what I mean? They're government. It's just they don't have the same mentality. And Scientology is like, we will yeah. smash on you every day, all day to the end of time. And they gave up. So I think the fact that they gave up one is, does the IRS ever want to get back into that again? I have no idea. Um, it seems like they do not want to. You know what I mean? That, mm. that I mean, how much more needs to come out about Scientology at this point? I mean... You've had number two and three guys come out. You've had celebrities come out. I mean, like, you know, you, it's almost like it's just, it's, it's like, what else does the public need to know? Right. Um, but there's two things they hide in America behind religious freedom. You're all religious bigots. How dare you tell us what to think or what to believe? Right. Um, yeah. Of course, that's their first line of defense. And that gets in a, that can really just derail the whole conversation. And I always yeah. completely just, push through that. And my answer is always, you're not a fucking religion. Mm -hmm. You started as a fraudulent science. Mm -hmm. That is what you started as. You started mm -hmm. as a science. And when that was proven to be a complete sham and fraud, then you took on the masquerade of religion only to protect your ass moving forward. And that is absolutely documented. You know what I mean? So I'm just like, don't even give me this religious shit. 
because they don't even sell it as a religion to you. They sell it as self-improvement and that it's the science and this, you know, that we have this technology. They even call it the tech, you know what I mean? For fuck's sake. So I'm just like, it's not a religion. Don't use that shit. You know, it's, it's just, it's, it's just like the biggest insult to actual quote religion. You know what I mean? Is that you're like, you're just, you're like the fuck out of here. You know what I mean? You don't get me to make a computer, right. That doesn't work. And then you, uh, you know, steal a Mac and then put it in the back of your shitty computer and then you plug it in. And I'm like, Hey, wait a minute, that's robbery. And you're like, no, it's not. I'm spiritually empowering this device to work. It works through energies that you don't understand, but I do. And that's how this works. So who are you to say that I've stolen these, whatever, anyways. Is one right, of and people don't want the fight. So they'll say, okay, whatever, crazy. Yeah, and, and a lot of people are, are very afraid of being the asshole who is pushed into the box of saying, I'm going to tell you what you can believe. Mm-hmm. And I get that. And mm-hmm. I understand that. But I'm just like, how many children have to be molested where you're actually able to challenge the Catholic Church? How many families get destroyed by Scientology where you're able to actually challenge the theology of it and say, mm-hmm. how many Nazis are going to come to your city where you're like able to challenge it and be like, you know, like, yeah, you can believe whatever you want, but there, there's always consequences. Mm-hmm. You, you, you can be able to say whatever you want. I run an open mic, you can say whatever you want. But I'm not walking to your car. And if someone, you know, if you (laughs) say some dumb shit and, you know, then you're going to deal with it. You are going to deal with it. And Scientology should deal with the consequences of what they've done. I don't know what what will happen. I mean, one, I can, you know, if David Scott is taking the same playbook, he's going to run out the clock. You know what I mean? Is that he is going to try to keep his ass out of court, uh, try to make sure that he never has to testify, never has to you know, go under oath. Um, you see that over and over, they will do anything they can to keep his ass out of court and that they basically just going to hunker down and bunker mentality, no matter how many memoirs come out, no matter how many different exposés, um, they are still going to try to scare and intimidate their, their everyone under him. And I mean, I don't know, it might just be Miscavige just tries to run out the clock with the rest of his life. And maybe when he nears the end, it'll be something similar to the Elrond of like, who's the hungriest wolf to take it over and they will get handed the true keys to the kingdom, which is all of the legalese, the, you know, the, the copyrights, the real estate holdings, the, that shit, that's, that's where, that's where the whole kingdom can come undone, you know? And, and I mean, even if they got hit with the IRS, right. Cause I know a lot of people feel like it's going to be a magic bullet or something. Um, I mean, their money's everywhere now. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? They'll go to another country. It'll be stuffed someplace. You know what I mean? It'll be shoved somewhere. Um, you know what I mean? So the best that that I think the critics can do is like, you know, we can't hold our breath waiting for the IRS. And I think the most thing you can do is try to make any anybody with an internet connection, if they walk into Scientology and then they walk out and check it out on their phone, mm-hmm. that hopefully there's enough shit out there where they're going to think twice. I mean, that's kind of the best that we can hope for. I mean, I mean, the best, you know, when I was much younger, I was like, this empire has got to fall. And then you see over and over why they continue to win. They are terrifying and they have an endless slush fund. And how are most mortals going to go against that on a day-to-day basis 
And the answer is that you can't. You have to do it in a community and a network, which is happening. And the internet is making happen. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But that one person isn't going to take it down. Um, And, you know, if Dave Miscavige has a heart attack, drops dead tomorrow, Tom Cruise could take it over. You know what I mean? Or Tom Cruise's or the latest person who is a latest medal of whatever is like, you know, we're going to take it over. But the true transfer of power is is all that money. I mean, you have, if you have like almost a billion dollar in assets, like where's that going to go? You know, people are like, it ain't all going to the IRS. The IRS turns around on him. And once it starts to collapse, you're going to see a lot of people, um, you know, it'll be a fire sale, same as it was when Elrond died, where it's like, there'll be a fight for power. A lot of people are going to just grab their money and run, you know, maybe get as far away as they can. Um, but I mean, the good news is, is that it's getting older, um, that their members are, you know, dwindling, that there's with the whole theology that um, its whole engine is secret knowledge, having all of that knowledge out on the Internet so that ex-members can look at it. Um, current members, if they dare looking at it, can look at it. You know, so I mean, all of that is important in taking mm-hmm. it down. But I mean, mm-hmm. um, who knows? I mean. The prospect that Scientology could be around in a hundred years, cooking people with the latest, this fucking insane myth of who Elrond was and this like Boy Scout turned world adventurer, expedition leader, submarine commander, the greatest man, the greatest friend of mankind. You know, I mean, like that that will just keep getting perpetuated over and over until it becomes myth is just absolutely stunning to me i mean it's it's just stunning and it's all right there it's all right there it's all a lot of it is so much in the open and so many people have paid so much of such a steep price to have that information come out Mm -hmm. right okay a really rough thing for like what are you rewarded with sometimes because they just keep marching you know when you were talking about you know this idea of who l ron hubbard was uh right i know with all these sort of naval accommodations and yeah. things that you can so i i know that you you have sort of taken that apart but for people listening who and and i encourage everyone to listen to jamie's first interview on the podcast and also there's this special feature on patreon uh where we riff some more but who was l ron hubbard in in a in a sense or less this, i feel like a 10th grade teacher you have five minutes to write the following who who was he really? How do you envision him now? What do you know to be true about him that you want people to know? I think really at his core is that he was a hustler and a storyteller. He loved the sense of adventure. And so he would write about men that would go on these great adventures. He wanted to go on great adventures. Um, but he often failed in his adventures until he realized that he could turn his own life into a new story that he could sell to people where everything that he had ever failed at, he had actually excelled beyond the wildest dreams of anyone around him and that he had congealed all of this, these adventures and this knowledge into this product that he's going to sell you uh, for ever increasing prices for you to continue along with the great adventure of L. Ron Hubbard into the mind and the subconscious. That was not one sentence. But yeah, I, th- I think that it's like he wasn't just a con man. I think that that I think that he really just fucking loved telling stories. I think that that was kind of his 
gift and curse in a way is that he almost trapped himself in his own story, but something that he just, yeah, he just loved to, even on the days when he had hit the peak of his success, you know, it said he would get all the Sea Order members, members around and, and, you know, have him sit his feet and he just tell long stories. And that in some ways I think is almost a tragedy of him. Um, when people are like, you know, well, would you have ever met, would you ever like to meet your great grandfather? And I was like, yeah, I would love to. I'm sure he was super fun to hang out with at dinner. He probably would have been insufferable. It would have been really difficult for me and him to figure out who can get in a word as wise as obviously we both are big fucking talkers. And the second that I would start to detect that his stories about himself were bullshit, then I would loathe him, you know, and I'd just be like, get out of here, you know, because I like hearing stories mm -hmm. like anybody else. Um, but I would least like to know, like, you know, all right, are you kind of has he like exaggerating shit? Like, that's fine. As long as it's entertaining, like I can deal, you know, but if you're literally like, this is a hundred percent fact and I need you to give me money then I'd be like, all right, you can fucking, you can go Mr. L. Ron. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know how much I would love that moment if someone or you had approached him and said, are you have the anything? <laughs> How's the exaggerator? Yeah, it's just like, all right, you want to tell me your story about the extradition in the Congo? Like, okay, you know, I'll I'll sit and have a drink and listen to this story. And like, you know, I'm, it'll be funny and ever. But then if you're like, you not only need to believe in this story, but because I told you this story, this should convince you to give me $20,000. I'd be like, all right, dude. You know what I mean? Like, go try that shit somewhere else. Because no. Like, let me see you some pictures of you from the Congo, that whole other part where the hippopotamus attacked you. That sounded like some shit I saw in a movie, you know. And that's how people actually confronted him in his early days. They were like, all right, you're entertaining, but no, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And he would, as you said with Narcissus, would fly into an insane rage, you know, when he get called on it. Mm -hmm. And I think with a lot of narcissists, like they they just want they want to tell you the story. And they want you to nod your head <laughs> and they want you to agree with what their ego is telling them on their best days. You know, everybody who deals with Trump, they're like any political leader from another country. They're like, how do you get this guy? How do you go well in a meeting with him? You just agree with him a lot. Compliment him a couple of times and he'll just buy into whatever the fuck you're selling. You know what I mean? That's all you got to do. You're just mm -hmm. like, oh, you're doing such a great job. And he's like, I am. I am. You know, it's, it's pretty easy, you know. Right. And so, okay. So I, but I love that phrase that narcissists just want you to agree with what they're saying on their best days. Yeah. Uh, so well said as everything that you say is. So I, I was also interested in sort of putting this idea out there that I think even if the IRS is maintaining whatever they need to maintain and people are being strong armed, whatever else, I would love for people to see that whenever they misbehave or whenever they attack their victims, whenever they attack anyone, they're tipping their hand. Mm. They're showing you who they are. Right. They're showing you what they're afraid of. They're showing you what they're capable of handling, which is not the truth. They will do whatever at all costs. But I, I guess people feel like they're being attacked and then it reveals something about them. But in these situations, it doesn't. It just reveals something about the attacker. If there's a way to kind of shift that perception, so people, the, the more Scientology misbehaves, the less respect it gets. 
Um, you know, I think that that would be accurate and that would be right. And that might be a helpful thing. And I wanted to be able to put that out there. I think just finishing up in terms of coming from a great grandfather who is a master storyteller, whether it was true or not. I love that you have these open mics. I love that you give people an opportunity to tell their story. It is so powerful. It's such a, a important turnaround. But I think also you used the word masquerade a while ago when we were talking. And I know with you doing vaudeville and, um, and putting on different makeup and costumes, that there's something very obvious about the fact that it's a masquerade. And then you get to take it off and right. say, and this is who I am. And what right. cult leaders, I think, do is they merge. They they stay in costume. Oh, yeah. it's That's that's how it, it seems to me as former. It's like that they're just never off stage. Okay. You know, they never they never slip, um, it, which to me seems exhausting as a performer. I mean, it, when I'm off the stage, I generally, and also some, sometimes I think it's because of I get uncomfortable with any Elrond comparison is that like, I don't want, I want to be on stage. And when I'm off stage, like I want to be real as fuck, you know, and I don't want to lie about my past or tell you some bullshit story of something that never happened. Like I don't ever want to be accused of that. And so, and I think having that kind of line drawn and you can still be on, you know, with your energy and perked up and be entertaining and charismatic when you're off stage as you are on stage you know, et cetera. But um, I think with them is that it's that mask stays on, you know, Jim Jones is always Jim Jones um, day in, day out. And the only time that he's not maybe is like with his inner circle, mm -hmm. you know, and, that, mm -hmm. and that's, but even then though, he has to still be on because they wouldn't be soldiers for them in the same way if they just let it all go, you know? And also you just, you just can't really ever apologize. You can't apologize. You can't have a lot of like, you know, statements of accountability, um, things like that, because you show weakness. Um, and so yeah. it's like, you're just sort of always have to kind of keep in control somehow. I mean, I think that you're so many of the decisions that uh, at least the ones that I'm aware of are in, in you being able to show that you are a, a genuine person and a, and a costume and a masquerade is just that. And so being able to switch to toggle back and forth is something I think so incredibly important and such an, an amazing distinction from your past in your family uh, and really an important distinction. And I think you've, in, in my mind, it felt purposeful. I don't know if it was. I mean, I think it was a lot of it was a natural evolution, but a lot of times we actually play with those specific kinds of um, techniques, you know what I mean, that are also used. I mean, there's a lot of shows that I do with my uh, clown collective. I'm in a clown group called Fufu Ha. Um, and I do it my show, Tourette's Without Regrets, every month. And I've done it all different kinds of shows. That, like the same techniques that work for pastors and reverends also work for crowd control and for, you know, controlling audiences. And I say control, but like, not really. It's like, you're, you know, you, they paid money. They want to see a good show, but if you have a lot of interactive audience elements. The only control is basically like, so shit doesn't get out of hand. It doesn't get chaotic. And also to encourage people to be uninhibited, to get on stage um, and celebrating, you know, people who like are, you know, go to do brave acts or are uninhibited, uninhibited and, and wild. And um, I mean, I feel like I, I definitely, have 
used a lot of those kinds of techniques and I use them openly and sometimes very transparently. Mm-hmm. Um, partly because like you don't need to be related to L. Ron Hubbard to have some sort of any kind of crowd control, anything. I mean, like I can teach these to people and like mm-hmm. I've taught them to kids, you know, in, in writing workshops and, you know, in terms of like, okay, if you want to like rile a crowd up, here's what you can do physically. This is how you need to kind of stand. You know, mm-hmm. there's a couple of hand gestures that you can use that are, you know, helpful in doing that kind of thing. Um, and that's to like to take someone who's a shy poet and then mm-hmm. turn them into like a motherfucking beast, you know, when they do this poem and like make the whole audience like be banging on the walls. Mm-hmm. And that was actually one of my proudest moments as a coach is um, one time when I got this very shy girl who sometimes would talk so quietly, it was like almost like a whisper. And she wrote this this banging anthem that was just awesome about uh, menstruation actually. Um, on this very kind of defiant um, feminist anthem. And it was awesome. And, but she was super shy. And so she's like, how do I get it to like this level? And so we worked on that a lot. And and it was absolute theater. It's like, you know, okay, when you walk up, you got to stand strong. You know, you got to signify your strength from the start, blah, blah, blah. And so, I mean, it ended up transitioning in this really powerful, like awesome piece that she was a total rock star when she did it. Wow. And, wow. you know, a lot of this stuff is, is theatrical and it's everything else. And I think that that's, that's the, 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 the distinction is that when it no longer becomes a show, um, when the show is, is not what's happening on stage, is that the show is offstage. You know, it's like when Elrond would go up and give lectures, but the show is when he's selling you, you know, offstage and everybody's getting to open centers for him. And, and he's repeating this biography of his over and over and over. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's important thing. I think that why Elrond's fake biography and that disconnect is so integral to mm-hmm. dismantling Scientology because all of it was based on him, on his research of like, you know, well, as someone who's had, you know, experiences in with nuclear physics and as a military commander and as a this and a this and a this, mm-hmm. all of those experiences have led me to this product, right? Mm-hmm. So that's always why you got to take him out of the entire equation because, I mean, if, if none of that research was real, anything else, then the product itself is completely tainted at the very, very least, you know? But I, I think that that is that is definitely the difference is that I have really spent a lot of my life on um, working to elevate and amplify other people's voices, youth, um, you know, people who are uh, working with the Navajo youth currently, and then like working on all the different high schools I've taught at, I'm teaching filmmaking to some more kids coming up. Um, and so that, that to me is a lot of like making a platform constantly for other people to tell their stories, use their voice. And you're just using tools, you know, teaching them theatrical tricks, crowd control tricks, or teaching them how to learn a specific camera and f-stops and exposure and whatever those are all just teaching them tools to them then they tell their story i'm not the difference is i'm not like okay we're going to teach a filmmaking class but you're all going to be making my movie right it's going to be a great experience for you we're all in this together but we're making my movie <laughs> i'm directing it and i own it and you guys are really just lucky to be working on it but i'm really here as a vessel for you you know, I mean, that's pretty much exactly what it is flipped on its side. And so it's it's just it's all kind of naked and transparent. And I enjoy these conversations because 
I think some people just ask me about Scientology, which I'm happy to just smash on um, because it just drives me nuts that it's just so, it drives me crazy that it's still just out there strutting, like just, just like hasn't lost a step, it seems like. Um, but I think that some people don't also ask the kind of more interesting questions, which is, you know, ask someone who's really tangibly kind of been in his genetic shadow or whatever and like really had to face that as a young man to really look at the road of of which kind of crossroad you want to take and knowing those instincts and you know i haven't always been good at him um you know and i'm not like some selfless fucking saint but is that like you know deciding or like are you going to go down a road that is all about you know yourself and using these kinds of instincts only to feed yourself and your ego or are you also going to go down are you going to go down this road that is also about um you know other people like people people call my show like uh, uh we joke about it is like it's a cult of individuality you know um, <laughs> because i mean it's literally like everybody it's you know you sign a sheets and like i'm making a place for you to get up and fucking rock whatever it is that you do play cello you juggle you hang from the ceiling you're an acrobat you're contortionist that you do your awesome thing and like you know that's that's amazing i think that that's incredible and then it's not it's always larger than me it's 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 you know but i mean i think every artist in some way has to like have some kind of weird wrestling act with their own kind of narcissism which isn't i don't know if the narcissism is the right word but like you you have to be convinced of your own uniqueness otherwise you're just going to succumb to the mediocrity that society's trying to bludgeon us into every day and you have to try to make something unique and believe in yourself to do that and believe in your vision in the face of all of its obstacles and everything else and so but i mean i think that that's what's what's beautiful is celebrating that and making the world a weirder place and distrusting a whole shitload of people when they come up and they say that they have an answer that nobody's figured out except them and be like, Oh, really? Do right. you? <laughs> really? You've heard really? that once or twice before. Uh, right. Right. Okay. So I want to finish there because it's all very, it's all very powerful, but you're right. There are some things that can feel um, uncomfortably similar, but they are so different in in such fundamental ways, because I think what makes all the difference is the intention. The intention is absolutely the intention. You know what I mean? Like, imagine you're a politician, right? You're someone like Obama or whatever. And they teach, they have classes. They teach you, this is how to sound like this. You know, this is the hand signal to be more commanding. Mm -hmm. This is the, oh, you have to look sincere. You know, we all learn different sort of, uh, you know, artifice, and you're talking about like the humble brag on Facebook. And, mm -hmm. you know, we're always learning these kinds of ways to kind of navigate in the world. But yeah, it's your intention. You know, if R. Kelly is going to dress up sexy, but your intention is basically to pillage like underage girl, then like, yeah, you have absolutely malignant intentions, you know, and I think that there's a lot of people that, you know, could potentially be accused of, of, being kind of leaders or whatever and having cult-like things. And mm -hmm. some of them are trying to help. And some of them, you know, maybe take the wrong path. And before they know it, because they are losing their own sense of accountability, mm -hmm. you know, they go too far and they go off the, the deep end. Right. Um, yeah. You know, and 
and I think that it always comes down to, you know, kind of general, general intention, but also it's just like how, how, I mean, are, are other people actually being empowered, um, around you or, you know, mm-hmm. what are you doing? That's, that's actually good. And it's your, it's your actions too. It's just yeah. talk is, talk is bullshit. Yeah. As I have proved with a very, very long, long, massive conversation. <laughs> Talk is um, bullshit. We probably shouldn't end with that line. Uh, but at the same time, I do think that you provide a safe space. And that's also a huge departure. Uh, and to have people tell their story, not your story. Uh, also a huge departure. But it says, about, it says something about what you need and what you don't need. And that that informs your intention and your behavior and um, how much you raise yourself up, but on the backs of other people or how much you raise other people up. And so I love to talk to you. And my intention is hopefully to be able to talk to you again at some point soon, but I wish you well in your good and exciting and rich life. And um, yeah, let's check in with each other. Again, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rachel. Talk to you later. All righty. Okay. Bye. One more thing before you go. I'm glad you got to hear the second part of my conversation with Jamie DeWolf. He has such an interesting way of speaking and expressing himself. Again, check out his earlier interviews with me on the podcast and also one that we did together for Patreon subscribers that you can hear if you become a patron. So go to patreon.com slash indoctrination and you'll get to hear the behind the scenes conversation with Jamie where he shares some things that not everyone gets to hear. Today, I want to make sure to talk about when people are being controlled by other people that one of the things that makes them able to disengage or makes it easier for them to disengage from those they used to be connected to and makes it easier for them to say goodbye to family and friends who are not fellow members of this group or who are not in favor of this relationship with this controller is that the controller, whether it be a cult leader or a partner or anyone, finds a way to have you see those who you used to love and trust as people who are now your enemy, who are dangerous to you, in fact. And sometimes they even find a way for you to see the whole world outside as the enemy. One of the things that makes something a cult is this us versus them mentality. So there isn't the sense that we all coexist peacefully and it's somehow not possible anymore in your life and in your mind. And that you now have to band together with the people in your group or with the person who is your partner or the person who really ultimately is your controller because you have to keep each other safe because everyone else is somehow dangerous to you, is going to take you away from this path that supposedly is the best path for you to be on, that they're all conspiring to kidnap you or they're all conspiring to take you away from this one true way of living or believing. And it creates a great division when you don't actually have those enemies. You just are convinced that you do. And 
when you finally figure out that this person might be controlling you or this group might be controlling you, sometimes you've already taken up so much time that you've taken then away from your family system or from your friendship group. And you've also sometimes needed to be in contact with your family or your friends to kind of tout this party line that they can never be trusted again, or they did awful things to you, or you don't want to have a relationship with them anymore, and you don't want to ever be back in their lives. And then that's one of the things that makes it hard when people get out to reconnect with family and friends, because they really had come to believe that they couldn't trust them. And they've sometimes accused them of doing things or being up to things that they would never dream of doing. They say that there is nothing as unifying as a common enemy. And in this day and age, especially with our political climate, people are being played to a great degree where they are being unified by the cultivation or by the creation of having what they are taught to see is a common enemy. So. An enemy, unfortunately, is something that can be cultivated all too easily. It can be cultivated also easily when you have distance from people, when you don't get to have a relationship with them day to day like you did before. So you don't get to say to them, hey, are you trying to kidnap me? And they will clarify that they're not. Or, hey, have you done these awful things to me? Or did you ever do these awful things to me? And they would have a chance to clear their record and reassure you that they are people that you've always been able to trust and have faith in. And they still are. People, again, who want to have you all to themselves will cultivate in you this sense that you have an enemy also by having you share many stories with them. And what I mean by that is people controlling you will ask you a lot about your life and will ask you a lot about your past very often. And you will think at the time they're just very interested in you and you won't realize that they actually don't care about the actual content of these stories as much as they're looking for opportunities. They're looking for parts of the story where they can jump in and rewrite your history, kind of reinvent your history in a way that works for them. So let's say you share a story where there was a time that you were hurt one time playing soccer when you were young. And typically someone would say, oh, that's a shame. I'm sorry that happened to you. I'm sorry you got hurt. What happened? How long was it before you got better? Who was there to take care of you? Were you able to keep playing soccer? kind of the normal questions. But someone controlling you will not respond in a typical way to a story like that, but instead will zero in on cultivating distrust of the people who were involved in that story. So they will ask things like, well, who was there at the time? And did they see you getting hurt? And did they do anything about it? And did they do enough to help you? Or the alternate is also true. Again, they'll take this any direction that they think is going to work for them to distance you from these other people. They might say, well, if they came to your rescue, do you think that was the right decision? And maybe they were emotionally crippling you by jumping in to rescue you too soon. And who was there? 
Was it a boyfriend? Was it a girlfriend? Was it your mother? Was it your father? And whoever was there and however they responded to you getting hurt will be used against them and seen somehow as diagnostic. So if your parents were there and they didn't notice you getting hurt, then they don't care about you. And if your parents were there at a place where you got hurt, then they will be seen as the ones who put you in harm's way and can't be trusted. And if your parents were there and they did help you, then they're crippling you and they don't trust that you can take care of yourself and they're coddling you and handicapping you. And that's why you're having so much trouble in your life now. Whatever the situation is, is going to be interpreted so that the other people in your life have somehow failed you. And this person who's talking to you now is the one who somehow has the insight to be able to show you why this is proof that you've had trouble in, the, in your past, in your life, in your relationships, and that they now are the ones to help you reinterpret things in the right way and let you know who you should trust and who you should not. People who are able to create enemies in your mind are opportunists and they are thieves. They find a way to elevate themselves in your eyes by decreasing your trust and your love of everybody else. And in that way, they are opportunists because they invent your memories. And every story will then be used to make the other people look bad and to make them look good and to make you somehow feel that you were lucky to be protected from these other people and to be away from them. And then you will feel like you owe it to this person to give back to them because after all, they're protecting you from being in harm's way by all these other people. And they are thieves for the same reasons, because they steal people from you. They steal significant relationships. They rob you of being able to trust the people you should be able to trust. And they keep you from seeing that the person who is making you reorient your thinking is the person who is taking something from you, not providing you with something. And they're just creating more division and separation and isolation in your life. I think about the Green Day song, Do You Know Your Enemy? Well, in so many manipulative situations, your enemy is the one who is creating that mindset in you that suddenly you have more enemies out there than you ever realized before. So if you suddenly feel that the people you love can no longer be trusted and no longer deserve your love, and the world outside is no longer safe, and your friends were never truly your friends, and thank goodness you at least have this one person or this one group where you can somehow feel safe. Remember these words and think about it if this moment presents itself. That you need, if you can, to open your eyes. Because this person who is supposedly giving you this sense of safety and peace is actually setting up a war room in your mind an imaginary battle of their creation. And the longer you believe their us versus them message, that they are protecting you and freeing you, the longer you will stay their prisoner. Talk to you next week. I'm excited to say that this podcast is now available on additional platforms. If you want to listen to Indoctrination, it's available for download on the NPR Radio Public app. YouTube, Apple Podcasts, 
Spotify, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com indoctrination. We now have a big library of content that you can access with any donation. And subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.